Good morning. We are studying through the book of Hebrews. If this is your first time with us, it's a great book. It's rich in the Old Testament. It brings a lot of context to the Old Covenant being fulfilled by the New. We're right in the middle of it. We'll be in chapter 9 this morning. There are resources, not to mention all the sermons to this point going all the way back through January that you can find online, catch up, jump in. Now, I do this thing occasionally. I don't know, maybe a few times a year when I teach, and I'll say, listen, don't take notes today. Today's not a good note-taking day. Just, just listen, think, and meditate under the Word. And all the note-takers in the room, and I know who you are, because when I say that, you give me like the stink eye. You hate it. I know. All right. So today is your day. Today is a great day to take a lot of notes. All right? Because we're going to cover a lot of things that we're really not going to have time to unpack all of them. And they are deep and they are rich. And honestly, we're just not going to get our mind around all of that in one service. All right? And so write some of these things down. And even just write some of your questions down and go back and begin to study. Again, great resources online to help you uh, do that at tcbchurch.org. Okay? So what we're seeing is that the entire worship life of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, has been radically revealed and refocused onto Jesus. The full requirement of the law, the righteousness required to be reconciled before God, the redemptive work that is beyond our ability, perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. And so the author says in chapter 8, verse 13, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The new agreement, that's what a covenant is, right? It's an agreement to cut an agreement. The new agreement fulfills the old agreement making it obsolete. The author of Hebrews wants the reader to know the way God relates to his creation, covenant, has changed. The past, the old agreement, is fulfilled in Jesus forever. And in so doing, Jesus has introduced a new agreement, a new covenant. The old with the promises back to Abraham and the Levitical law and, you know, the priesthood that we've been studying so much about in Hebrews. Helpful and good, but weak as it is unattainable left to ourselves. It was only a shadow of the real thing. But the new covenant in Jesus introduces a better hope through which we draw near to God. All that was unattainable, now accomplished in Jesus. And to this point, although, you know, Moses, the promised land, the law, the priesthood, these things aren't in our everyday life. I mean, you don't come in with a lot of background on these things, right? 
But still, we're not like resistant to them. We're neutral. If we've studied our Bible, we're aware of them. But we're not really resistant to them. They aren't cultural hurdles to us. But guess what? The author is about to lead us through details that we've deemed best not to discuss in our culture. Aspects of the gospel that we have concluded best softened. Where the culture around us has shaped us by its norms and its constraints to kind of just minimize it to the side. Not think about it, not talk about it. So a little bit of a setup for that. Just get our mind there for a minute and just acknowledge that cultural norms and constraints change with the generations. We see that in all kinds of things. Light things like fashion, right? What is in will one day be out, right? Some of it, I never really figured that out. I remember I was in middle school, and I've told this story before. It's, it really marked me. I was one of the, I was just cool before my time. In the summer, I just wore these nylon shorts. That's all I wore. And in the winter, I wore sweatpants. That's all I wore. I was like a kid that just ate chicken nuggets, and that's all they eat, okay? And life was really simple. And one day, I'm in middle school, and I, I, I don't know, I don't think I even said much. I just walked up to this girl, and I said, hi. And she goes, ew. It's kind of lame. And she goes, you wear sweatpants like every day. Uh, I wish I knew that girl. <laughs> I mean, remember her. I would like to thank her. She helped me. And, and yeah, I understand why that was kind of mean and silly, but she kind of had a point. Not really cool to wear sweatpants every day. So I remember my parents picked me up from school that day. I got in the car. I was probably in the car about a minute, and I said, hey, you know what I've been thinking? I should probably get some jeans. The cultural norms changed the way I thought about something. See, we do that with important things too. I like the example of parenting because if we're honest, it's one of the things we're most insecure about and also self-assured at the same time. So go back in time and think about like the Puritans around the 17th century or so and think about their methods of parenting and think about modern parenting. I assure you, they do not line up. They're different. Now drop one of those modern parents, maybe you, back into that day. Do you think you would just continue with the same philosophies? Or do you think you would change? Would you not want to be ridiculed? Would you not want your kids to miss out on opportunities? See, that's really the whole premise behind China's ban on kids in the worship gathering. Did you know that? China has put a ban on kids going to church, the gathering. You're not allowed to go. And it puts parents in a really awkward spot. Because if their kids are caught, they're there in the gathering, their names and opportunities will be withheld for them. So you choose. Does your kid gather with you on Sunday? Or do they go to college? What would you do? And what's happening in this is we recognize that the cultural norms and constraints change our conversations. 
They change our meditations. These norms and constraints, they impact what we think on and what we talk about. And we are not immune as the church. Even if we know better, it impresses on us these things. You say, why this setup? Because the author of Hebrews is leading us into a subject that our cultural norms and constraints have all but made taboo. And yeah, we'll kind of sing about it at church, but we don't really think much about it, and we don't like to talk about it for sure. And there are a lot of churches that don't even sing about it, and they won't even talk about it inside the church. This morning we're talking about blood sacrifice. And the author of Hebrews is going to talk about this really all the way through chapter 10. And even as I say blood sacrifice, let's just be honest, one Kind of blood's just generally awkward in our culture anyway, but more so when it's connected to the idea of a sacrifice. I mean, the thought of slaughtering a bull or a goat, taking its blood in your hand and sprinkling it around. I mean, I, it's odd to me. Consider the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which is what we're going to see here in Hebrews in just a moment. And you don't have to go there, but in Leviticus 17, it's laid out the priest's duty. Let me just read some of it to you. And he, the high priest, shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. Sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. Keep going, he says, the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin, their flesh, and their dung shall be burned up with fire. Influenced by our norms and our constraints, influenced by the way we culturally think, such an agreement is kind of hard to take. We don't live in, nor do we have memory of, a sacrificial blood system. We just don't. And so that leaves us with two hurdles as modern readers in this letter to the Hebrews. First, we got to remember that blood sacrifices were not only present, but normal for these original readers. The letter to the Hebrews was written somewhere before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. That's important because really it's the destruction of the temple that kind of begins the end of these blood sacrifices. But before this, this is a part of their life. It's part of their culture. It's normal to them. Second and more importantly, God's covenant, his agreement by which he relates to us his creation church listen is through blood sacrifice 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant, the old covenant, had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. Notice, there were rules. There was limited access. You had to go about certain, or do things certain ways, and everyone isn't permitted. We're going to see him introduce the tabernacle in just a minute. And if you remember the tabernacle, there in the wilderness, they set it up, there is an outward courtyard. And all of Israel's permitted to come into the courtyard and offer sacrifices, pray. But inside the courtyard, there was a tent. It's known as the tent of meeting. And inside of it were two sections. The first section was known as the holy place, where the priests were permitted. There they would go, kind of day by day, all the time, burning incense, working on the candles, offering bread sacrifices. And separated by a large curtain was the second section, known as the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest was permitted to go once per year. So verse 2, for a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Pause for just a second. You want to go back, you want to study all these things. They are great studies and they are important aspects of a shadow that make much and reveal who Jesus is. But the author of Hebrews says this at the end of verse 5. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He could have. They were known in detail. He could have explained them. But what he's saying is now is not the time. While these things are important, he says these things, meaning the symbolic significance of the details he's summarizing, while they are important, they're not the priority. They're not the point he's trying to make. See, he is saying there is a cumulative concept, more urgent, more important, and that's the author and therefore our priority this morning. Verse 6 These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. In other words, the priests continually entered this first section, tending to the lamps, the burning of incense, the offering of bread. Verse 7, but into the second, only the high priest goes. Now notice, the author is now zeroing in on the same context that he's been unpacking for the past several chapters, that is, the high priest and his function. And he only goes in but once per year. And not without 
taking blood. No access without blood. Which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. It's important for us to pause and just see something here. We sin because we are sinful. Sin isn't just limited to our action. We are fallen, broken, sinful in our very heart. Sin has corrupted our very nature. And even the atoning work of the high priest pictures this. He didn't just make blood sacrifices for the known confessed sins of Israel. But the unintentional sinful state of Israel's heart. Verse 8, by this, this shadow, this typological picture of the atoning blood sacrifice of the high priest and all of its limiting access and regulations, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. As long as the old covenant regulations for worship were in place, the people, you and I, did not have access to God's presence. We could not enter. Under such regulations, There is no rest, no real peace, no access. We're stuck somewhere in the courtyard. Verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. Again, just keep it simple. Stay in the most obvious context of the author's kind of ongoing argument here. It's this, that the old covenant regulations were symbolic of God's new covenant through Jesus. What was illustrated, what now is through Jesus. Mike did an incredible job breaking this down from Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 last week. Remember, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. It's a shadow. Projects. It's not the real thing. It's a display of the thing. It's a type of the thing. And so verse 9, keep going. According to this arrangement, that is the old covenant regulations, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect Complete, bring to an end, deliver rest for the conscience of the worshiper. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, meaning they are outward ordinances. They're not for the conscience. Think... um, Conceptually, the way you best will get your idea around it is think of the way we use the word heart. It's kind of what we're talking about here. With all my heart, with all my being, it's like my core. You know, we, we use the word heart a lot for this. It's the idea for conscience here. Who I am. 
imposed until the time of reformation. That is a refocusing through Jesus, the fulfillment of the old and the high priest of the new. See, here's the argument again. The entire worship life of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, has been radically revealed and refocused onto Jesus himself. The new agreement fulfills the old agreement, making it obsolete. And the author of Hebrews wants his readers to know who still live in the immediate like tension of all of these things. The way God relates to his creation covenant has changed. The past is fulfilled in Jesus forever. And in doing so, Jesus has introduced a new agreement. All that was unattainable, you didn't have access, has now been accomplished in Jesus. You can enter into the presence of God. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Now catch that, that's important. Through the greater and more perfect tent, the presence of God. Not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Now in Jesus, access isn't through some earthly tabernacle, through some earthly temple. I'm not even going to explain it to you. I just want the word to do its thing. I just want to read you some verses that are going to help you see this. John chapter 2. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, the dwelling place for their shadow of presence of God. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then Jesus said, it is taken, then the Jews said to him, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Later, Jesus, moments before the cross, stood before a broken and no longer necessary high priest in his council. And some stood up in Mark 14, 57, and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. 
They crucified him. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, the end of his speech before the council, listen. He says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they disposed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Listen, if you know this story, you know it well, this is where the goosebumps begin to kind of raise up on your arms. Verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, quoting back to Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all these things? And Stephen says to them, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, who you have now betrayed and murdered. You, who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus Standing at the right hand of God. Stephen said, behold, I see the heavens opened. And the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Let me restate it within our context in Hebrews. Behold, our eternal high priest stands. Not in a limited earthly dwelling, but in the full presence of God eternally making intercession on our behalf. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so a little bit later in Hebrews chapter 9, our author writes, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. How? Through his blood sacrifice. Go back to verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means 
of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will the blood of Jesus purify, that is to make clean, to purge, to purify our conscience, our heart, from dead works to serve the living God. Let me, let me kind of paint it for you a different way. David, after his sin with Bathsheba, in Psalm 51, cries out to God and says, blot out all my iniquities. Listen, here's what he says. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God. The ESV translates it blood guiltiness. The truth is, the word is just blood. The ESV is just helping us understand the context as modern readers. For, for context, you can go back to Psalm 39, David's writing, and he says, what profit is there in my blood? Same word. And he goes on in chapter 51, verse 16, after saying this, and he says, For you, God, will not delight in sacrifice, where I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. David, through the power of the Holy Spirit, understood something critical. The sin of his heart could not be atoned by the blood of bulls and goats. The blood sacrifice he required wasn't going to be perfected in the old covenant. So he cried out to God, create in me a clean heart. That's our big truth this morning. The blood sacrifices of the first covenant could not perfect the worshiper. We'll come back next week and we'll spend a lot of time in verses 11 through 14. But today, I want to make sure we understand this. The blood sacrifices of the first covenant could not perfect the worshiper. In the first and second generation following Jesus, first and second generation Christians, man, there was a struggle to leave behind the traditional practices of worship connected to the old covenant because it was so intertwined into their families, into their instinctive norms, into their methods of worship, their culture. Much of the New Testament addresses these struggles as you read through these epistles and they wrestle with issues like circumcision and Sabbath and food and washings. 
The author's argument that Jesus is better isn't some isolated big truth. No, it has big ideas. It has implication. The old is obsolete. You cannot live in the truth of the new covenant while seeking a measure of atonement through the old covenant. Go back to verse 9, according to this old arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Three big ideas quickly, I want you to see them. Implications. First, our outward gifts cannot atone for the heart. You cannot cover the sin of the heart. You cannot give enough. Second, our outward sacrifices cannot atone for the heart. You cannot surrender enough. The outward regulations cannot atone the heart. You cannot do enough. These actions of the old arrangement only cover the outward. It does not perfect our heart, our conscience. And so lamb after lamb was slaughtered, a blood sacrifice for the outward doorpost of our being. A temporary atonement standing between God's justice and our sin. And yet, inside the blood-stained doorposts of our being, we remained unchanged. Our sin remained. Jesus said to the Pharisees and the scribes warning them of this, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Back into 1 Samuel 16 says, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So what's the point? If you think Jesus plus you in any measure factors into your righteousness, you do not understand the gospel. You do not understand the new covenant. You do not understand God, for you lower him. And you do not understand yourself, for you elevate yourself. And when we do this, when we add our gifts and our sacrifices, our regulations, here's what we subtly do. Are you ready? We don't see a need any longer for a blood sacrifice. Not really. We rationalize in our modern culture that God loves us and we love him. He didn't really have to sacrifice his life, his son, his blood. Kind of begins to seem like an add-on. Like an extra thing more than the only way. 
and we hear around us and conversations and Oh man, they're titled all kinds of different things, whether it's universalism or deconstruction or whatever term you want to throw at it. But here's the point. Isn't love enough? Isn't it just enough? Definitions matter. But the way that question is asked... Church, let me be very clear, no. Why isn't it enough? Two reasons. First, who God is. God is love, and he is also perfectly holy, just. And those two things are not at odds with each other. God is the definition of love, and he is perfectly just every sinner each and every one will be brought to justice there is no turning away from this reality there's no sidestepping it or just not looking at it or pretending it's not that bad with God there is only holy justice it is who he is second it isn't enough because of who we are we are sinful unjust rejectors of God withholders of his worth we have nothing to offer what is God's responsibility to us condemnation and rejection see God cannot change who he is he is righteous and we cannot change who we are left to ourselves we are sinful and so how can this be redeemed only the blood sacrifice of Jesus. I'm going to ask the team to come on up as we do. You want to look this up and kind of think through this from a really kind of a theological term that summarizes it. We're talking a lot about penal substitution. But let me give you just a simple breakdown of it. Jesus took our sin and died in our place. And his death, his blood propitiated, satisfied God's holy requirement for justice. God executes holy justice on his son. He is just. And God lovingly redeems through an eternal high priest. Jesus, his son, he is justifier. I want you to see this and realize I'm not just kind of throwing this out at you. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now... In Jesus, in the new covenant, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Why? It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just 
and justifier for the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul goes on into chapter 5, verse 1, and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The blood sacrifices of the first covenant could not perfect the worshiper. But now, through Jesus, through his blood, we have access. So the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 6 verse 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place. You ready? Behind the curtain. Remember the curtain that separated us from the presence of God? Behind the curtain, access, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is a better high priest. Jesus is a better covenant. Spoiler, looking ahead a little bit, because Jesus is a better sacrifice. The author will go on in chapter 10, in verse 19, say, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. The curtain is open. Access to rest, true peace to God's presence is available. There is access to the presence of God by the blood sacrifice of Jesus. For in Matthew 27, verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And he yielded up his spirit. He died. And in verse 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split for there is a new covenant made with a better sacrifice that through the blood of Jesus you and I by faith might die to our sin and be raised to walk in a new life in the very presence of God would you pray with me Heavenly Father, you are great and worthy of our lives. Thank you for the blood sacrifice of your son. For there is no other way. Thank you for being just. Thank you for your holiness. And Father, thank you for your love that you are also justifier. Lord, I pray through the power of your spirit, if there's one here, 
who does not know you through faith, that your spirit would overwhelm them this morning with the presence and the reality of the gospel, that you love them so much that you shed your blood, that they might have eternal life, salvation, redemption in your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.